Hey, this is Mark Kassoff, and this is RPM 45. What we're going to do right here... What we're going to do right here is go back, back into time. Yeah, what we're going to do right here is go back into time. We're going to go back to the heyday of the 45 RPM record. You know, the little records with the big holes. We're talking about the 60s, 70s, and 80s. We're going to talk to some of the artists that had big hits back then. Some may have had many hits. Others might be called one-hit wonders. But as someone who programmed Top 40 stations back in the day, I know we could get 100 new 45s in a week and only add two or three to our playlist. So every hit is a huge achievement. And we're here to celebrate the achievers on RPM 45. We are talking to Nick Van Eed, the co-founder, lead singer, and songwriter of Cutting Crew, who had two top 10 hits in 1986, I Just Died in Your Arms, hit number one in the USA and countries all over the world, and followed up with another top 10, I've Been in Love Before, and uh, you're doing some amazing things right now, uh, and I definitely want to talk about that too. So I want to start out at the beginning, though. You've been doing this for a long, long time. <laughs> right <laughs> you started very young well as elton said many years ago i'm still standing and sometimes yeah. my knees sometimes my knees would beg to differ but uh, mine too right. <laughs> <laughs> i've had a good run i mean i've been very very uh, lucky you know luck's a big thing i'm sure with everybody that you've interviewed that has to become a part of well, anybody's life, but especially the music business, you know, you've got to be there at the right time and take those moments when they're given you. Um, so I signed my first record deal when I was about 19. And I think, not that it means anything, but I think since I was 19 and I'm 62 now, I've always had either a record deal or a publishing deal, you know. So um, wow. I'm, I'm a survivor and I'm proud of that. Absolutely right. How did you get a record deal at, at that young age? Well, we go back to that uh, thing that the music business has, this, it's a funny word, allure, you know, the allure of music business, whereby you get discovered, you know, and these things are what you see in films where the big mogul comes into a pub, but it really did happen. I was working in a hospital in the operating theater, for God's sake, doing, oh, that, wow. doing, the, doing the lights and the sucker bottles and all that kind of stuff. And um, every Thursday night I'd play in the hospital pub and um, one Thursday evening, a guy was visiting his son who was in that hospital, and his name was Chaz Chandler. He was the manager of Jimi Hendrix, and um, that was in The Animals. He was the bass guitarist of The Animals. Yeah. And he came up, and I was playing my, you know, maybe Don McLean, maybe my Beatles, maybe my Rolling Stones, and, and a few of my own songs, and he left his card on the amplifier and said, give me a call in the morning. And... Two weeks later, I was in Poland playing uh, amphitheaters in front of 15,000 people supporting his band then, who were Slade, who were enormous in Britain. Yeah, I remember them, sure. Wow. Yeah. So th those things do happen, you know, and uh, I, I may have lost his calling card that night, or I may have thought, I don't know who he is, I won't call him. So combination of all those things. What was he so doing I, in the hospital anyway? Um, he was in the hospital? He was, was he a patient or visiting someone or what? His son was, it was a specialist hospital for um, skin stuff. So I think his son was having a mole removed. So, and I met his son obviously many times since. So I always thank him for that mole. <laughs> <laughs> 
So if he hadn't had that mole. Yeah, exactly. And then it could have been discovered, but maybe not at that moment. Uh, yeah, one one hopes I would have a second chance. Yes. But, you know that was the uh, that was the door opening. Um, that was the initiation by the roadies. You know this young uh, greenhorn coming in um, with no experience at all. And these roadies were like thirty years. Of, they were hardcore. Excuse my French, hairy ass roadies. So <laughs> I would get electric shocks in the microphone. I would get. Oh. In those days, never since. They would saw one of the legs off my stool and just glue it back together. You know, I'd sort of fall over. So it was a, a very good initiation yes. period. <laughs> yeah. It's like being in a fraternity, right? You, you got to pay your dues, right? You got to yeah. show them what you're up to. Totally. But you were, you were solo. So that was solo then, yeah. But through that association with Chaz, I'd, had, I'd done solo for what? for six years and I, it was time to get a band together so I formed a band called The Drivers um, which was a horrible pun on the Nick Van Eed band drivers um, <laughs> thinking it was just going to be a bit of fun but exactly the same thing happened again Mark um, so now it's uh, 1982 three and we're playing in a tiny pub down here in rural Sussex as I explained to you earlier a proper music pub, though, you know, one where people would come just to see music. And a one-eyed, one-legged Jewish attorney from Toronto was in the bar. And um, his name was Bernard Solomon. And uh, he made a phone call back to Canada in the old payphone boxes. Remember in those days where you put the coins in? And we were in the halftime dressing room next door, and we could hear him saying, Marty! Marty, I just seen God. They're called the drivers. <laughs> <laughs> so, and we got signed. The next thing we know, we're living in Toronto, being produced by Terry Brown of Rush, huh. going up to Morin Heights to record albums. So, you know, oh my. the luck. Wow. I was wondering how you got a Canadian record contract. Yeah, that's how you do it. You get signed by a guy. He really was. He was a remarkable man. Um, he had one wooden leg from a car accident, and he had the patch. You know, it, mm. it was just something out of a comic book. It was wow. Wonderful. And so uh, that's where you met your future partner in Cutting Crew, correct? Yeah, that's, that's where I think now we finally landed where, I mean, I'm not suggesting for one bit I didn't have fun. I think... If you want to talk about fun, I think I had more fun with the drivers. You know, we were crazy, nutty, three-piece kind of XTC meets the police meets Freddy and the Dreamers or something. We were wild. Uh -huh. and, and I was a bit younger then. I was single, you know, so there was, uh, yeah, a lot of good times. I can only imagine. Yes. In my but, greatest fantasies, which I never quite <laughs> achieved, but you did. <laughs> <laughs> you did. <laughs> and, and, so, um, yeah. And you had yeah, a hit in up. Canada, right? You had a hit called something. Uh, oh, I, well, here, I've got it down here. Uh, Tears on my anorak. Is that, is that right? And I, did, I had to look up an anorak. I didn't know what that was. We loved that. The, the local radio stations in Canada would always run, a, you know, come see the drivers tonight. If you can tell us what an anorak is. Is that it? Was, yeah. <laughs> <Some> <laughs> I thought guy, it was just me. <laughs> no, some guy, hey, it's Brad here. Is it a prophylactic? No, it's not a prophylactic, Brad. No, I'm, I'm <laughs> <laughs> but you do wear it. <laughs> uh huh. Canada's great. Great country. 
I agree. I think it's um, a special place because of where it is. You know, it's always going to be just north of you guys and, and all of that implies. And of course, then they're fiercely, um, you know, my experience, fiercely proud of their European heritage, just like the States is as well, but they've still got this Commonwealth connection. So yeah. um, when we recorded, I recorded an album out on the East Coast, we can come to that later, but you would come from Scotland to Cape Breton in Nova Scotia to learn how to play the fiddle you uh-huh. know, because they, they, they've assumed and, and completely engorged their, their heritage even more than us Brits who are kind of letting it drift away. You know, there's yeah. something very beautiful in that. Yeah, so that's where um, we got signed to, Toronto, to a Toronto label, RCA, and um, it was a lot of um, filthy, dirty money. We didn't realize at the time, you know, but we were being bankrolled by mafia money coming up from Florida. Really? It all, yeah, it all blew up in the end. I, I can remember a few meetings where I had to go in and Bernard would say to me, Nick, just be a fucking pop star, okay? And there would be this enormous man sitting in the corner there going, obviously coming up to make sure that Bernie is spending the money correctly. You know, this is Oh, my like, God. Yeah. So oh. I'd be like, all right, mate, yeah, I come from jolly old England. Yeah, I'm in a band, you know. This, <laughs> Hilarious times. Um, so it was Toronto-based, but eventually we, we got to the East Coast, and that's where it happened. That's where a band called Fast Forward was supporting us, the local big band. You know, they they would probably drew in as many fans as we did, as the drivers, you know. And there he was, this guy with this Roland guitar synthesizer making sounds from a guitar I'd never heard before, and click. And that's Kevin. That's Kevin. And uh, so you guys at some point must have broken up your bands and joined together to form Cutting Crew. We did. It wasn't long. I mean, drivers were just about done. And I just said to Kevin, you know, you, you want to come and do anything with me or I'll come back to you because I'd already fallen in love, literally, with Canada. Um, and within a year, he turned up in Heathrow Airport with his trusted Larave acoustic guitar and just a holdall. And I said to him, shall I get your suitcase? And he said, oh, this is me. Uh, just, a, <laughs> you know, just perfect Kevin. This is Kevin McMichael, yeah, who became my best friend and um, teacher. I mean, you know, it's, I don't mean any of this to sound highfalutin, but he, really, he was older than me. My dad was soon to die fairly young. And he, he kind of became like a, you know, I learned a lot from him mm-hmm. as well as playing guitar a bit better and, mm-hmm. and hopefully writing songs a lot better. Mm-hmm. But you're the front man, right? I mean, you're, 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 the, you're the lead singer. You're the one that the eyes focus on and he's off to your side. I mean, looking at the videos and all, right? Yeah, he was a bit like the, the, um, like the bandito just in the shadows there, you know, uh-huh. I'm out from. Um, he, he, this is a very true story and I only really remember this as of late, and that is when he, so folks, he died, um, wow, 14 years ago now, uh, 15, excuse me, it's rude to not remember, but uh, no, no, my good heavens, it was on the turn of the century, yeah, so a long time ago, Um, but he would, um, he remembers all those stories, you know, I don't, and you you put your finger on it, I was out front, so after the gig, I've been doing an interview now, um, or when we flew into Pittsburgh, I'd be going to do an interview. He's back at the hotel having fun or, you know, finding some, <laughs> some dodgy Irish bar or something. Um, so 
he would sit when we would meet up before he died and tell me these stories. And I was like, oh my God, I forgot all about that. And he's taken them all with him, I'm worried. So there's an advantage to be a little bit in the shadows. You get to party sooner. Party sooner and apparently remember it. (laughs) (laughs) So what cutting crew, where did that name come from? It's a pretty boring story, Mark. Um, Kevin used to hate that question so much. One day he nearly got punched in the face in Italy. We were on one of these um, huge Sanremo festival. You know, everybody in the world was there. We were on this yacht being interviewed by an Italian uh, journalist. And so he said, so cutting crew, how how you get name? And Kevin had the answer on his (laughs) T-shirt. And this, this guy got so upset, he nearly punched him in the mouth. Oh, uh, I hate to ask a boring question like that. <laughs> <laughs> so Kevin used to make up other versions of the answer, but I'll, I'll give you the straight one. Um, we, were, we were forming the band, so it was kind of current. It wasn't like an old idea. And Kevin and I were just making demos, you know, and I'd already written Died in Your Arms and Been in Love Before, Mom for the Mockingbird, all on these little cheap demos like you did back then, you know, in your home studio. And we thought it was rather ironic because both of us, since we were 16, had only ever played live. We were always in a live band. Mm-hmm. But now we had become a cutting crew, basically cutting, making records only. Oh, okay. All right. Well, I have another uh, boring uh, question I'm sure you've been <laughs> asked many times before. But the thing about it is, so you, you come out with your very first album and right out of the shoot, smash hit. I mean, we hear all these stories about bands who recorded one album, two album, 300, and maybe on the third or fourth, maybe they really hit it. But you guys hit it right out of the shoot. Mm. Amazing. Amazing. The album was called Broadcast, and the number one single from that album, I Just Died in Your Arms. And here's the question that I'm sure you've been asked many times. What's it about? Um, it's... It's almost become mythological, the answer now, because it's grown so many legs and arms. And back in the time, I had to be a little bit more tactful because of relationships and so on, you know. But, hey, I'm an old man now, and so is the wife. Tell (laughs) it like it is. (laughs) Um, Basically, um, I was with a girl, and we split up. And uh, I remember tracking her down and finding her on, on a New Year's Eve, and we had a hell of a party, and obviously ended up together. And... I really did, and I'm sorry, especially to the female folk listening, but I really did write that, that line down the following morning after breakfast because that's what happened. And, uh, and I'm a complete titles nut, and that's the only way I work. I love, even if it's not the title of your song, you know, it gets you started. So it was about spending a night with uh, the woman who um, we later had my beautiful daughter, Lauren. Uh, we're not together anymore, uh, but, yeah, it was uh, an important revisiting <laughs> so dying in your arms uh not to yeah. dwell too much uh means a certain moment in time in the evening right yeah absolutely there was that moment um and of course you know back in the day and you're still asking me a question i don't find this question pouring one bit um, <laughs> back in the day the french you know the french would say Nick, is it uh, le petit mort you know the little death and all this uh, alluding to you know sex and all that and of course it was yeah of course it was um, I i've but, learned a lot yeah but I've of course mark but of course mark um the uh the bringing it full circle i know we will talk about now 
in a, in a while. Absolutely. So just, just, just while we're on the title, though, you know, that lyric, uh, 34 years later, you know, with, with dying in it, you know, and what's going on in the world now, it's been, it's remarkable when I sing it, how over the years it's meant different things to me. Really? Uh, yeah, it huh. really has. Even though it was born out of something that was so obviously definite and specific, you lose your father, you lose Kevin, I've lost my younger brother, you know, there's mm. other, other connotations come through a lyric. Yeah, it's a title. Titles mean a lot, and it's a very memorable title. You know, and honestly, for years, you know, I thought it was a great title and I didn't really know what it was about. And now I'm happy to know. And if any, anyone listening didn't know, now they know. So that's good. But I always wonder so when you record this and when you have the final product and you listen to it back, do you know in your heart, this is going to be big? Do you have that feeling or is it like, you know, I've heard artists say, we, we have no idea what's going to be a hit, what's not. We're always surprised. Well, I definitely agree with that because especially your first hit, you don't know. But of course, we've been making records for, for four or five years. You know, so we had the experience of having your first vinyl or playing your dad, the new CD or whatever, just about CDs in those days. Um, but this one was hot. Um, we were recording at a Chipping Norton Studios. You should look it up and Google it afterwards. It's a classic, you know, old Oxfordshire converted schoolhouse with a with a flagon of beer under the recording desk. You know, it was quite beautiful. But we were recording it and people were coming in, you know, like people, the, 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 there was two studios there, and they'd say, what's the name of your band, mate? And they'd say, well, Cutting Crew. He said, that's, that's the song. That's going to be the song. That was it called. Wow. You know, the girl, there was an instant buzz. But then, of course, crucially, that's not enough. That's not enough. Just to make a really fantastic sounding record, whether you like the song or not, you know, it sounds great. It was of the time, but that's not enough. Then you've got to get the right pictures. Then you've got to get the right video at any point, the right press at any, maybe my look would have been wrong or some bad thing happened. You know, the, the, chink, the click, the click, the click, the click that makes it all continuum to the end. It always staggers me that because at any point in that continuum, if you've got a bad link, doesn't matter if you wrote fucking Hey Jude. Mm-hmm. It's, it's promotion. It's everything. Yeah. I, I, you know, I always say to get a hit record is a huge achievement. It's an amazing achievement. Uh, and you, you had two out of that album, right? I've been in love before another one. So you've got two top 10 singles, and this is all over the world. I mean, Died in Your Arms was probably number one. I, I saw one statistic, 17 countries. Yeah. yeah so. it, was, uh, it was, they were heady days. And of course, we knew, even then we knew, you know, we were, I was 27 years old then. We knew, uh-oh, look out, you know, you're going to have to come up with something here, mate, because it's not supposed to happen like this, especially it being the first single. And I begged the, the label. I said, look, you, you know this is good, this song, and it's a bit special. They couldn't wait. It has to be the first one, you know. And I uh-huh. to, you know, just build it and then get the album out and maybe be touring, but no, they put it out first. So, um, yeah, the second album, you know, is always going to be a, um, a hard thing to do. Uh, I know you're over in the States, you call it the sophomore album. Um, and it's, I think a beautiful fine just as good as the first album but they were like hey i'm sorry to do the american accent but 
we're not hearing that uh, guiding your arms, Nick. You know, you, mm. you go away and then and just give it another couple of songs. So we go uh. away. And they, they, they delayed the album by a year for that. And by this time, you know, all, all the momentum that we built up, yeah. it was like, you know, in every music industry, you've you got to keep it going, you know? Oh, yeah. It broke my heart. It really hurt me. Really it's hurt the me. machinery, right? The star-making machinery, what they say, right? It's like... Uh, yeah, it's tough. And I've also heard a lot of artists say that that first album is an album that you've been writing all your life. And then the second one, well, it's uh, all of a sudden you've got to come up with it. You know, you've got to come up with songs. Whereas you've been working your whole life on that first album. Is that, is that, was your, your experience as well? Yes. It's a, it's a, it's a good way of putting it. Of course, you know, you, we wrote half of that album, as the band, you know, but uh -huh. it's, but it, the big tunes and the way you've sort of made it mold together has been your lifetime coming up to it. I agree with that. I've often described the cutting proof, the big first three albums as the first one was Nick's album. Um, I put it together. I wrote most of it and it was my vision. I don't mind any of them. The other, the other boys would agree with me. The second album was the band. You know, we had our Grammy nomination. We were living over in um, California for a while. Um, all these managers were sniffing around and of course everybody in the band went oh I see this is this is nice to earn a bit of money from songwriting so suddenly I had about 150 songs oh, wow. to week through you know um, but it was the band album we'd made our sound then uh -huh. and then the third album Compass Mentis I think was definitely Kevin's album it was uh, much more experimental so yeah but I mean getting back to your point to follow a huge, you know, I think we sold three and a half million albums then. Um, to follow that up was always going to be a tough ask. And much more crucially, what was happening was, you know, whilst these music guys were, you know, delaying stuff and we're working our bums off trying to give them the best, you know, songs we could, um, the music business is changing. You know, this, this kind of uh, rock... AOR, whatever you call it, you know, um, his stuff is, it's still there and it's still there today. But suddenly there was this urban dance music coming in, especially in Britain, you know, we uh -huh. had Soul to Soul, Naina Cherry, these exciting, young, colorful um, people of color, grooves, and this kind of standing on stage going, wow, you know, and that was happening behind us. So by the time we released this second album, and this is not an excuse at all, but I really sense the business overtaken us. There's something very distinctive about some 80s music, especially the earlier 80s, the, what they call the second British invasion. Mm -hmm. And you guys kind of came at the tail end of that. But yeah. to me, your music is, is more, more universal. It's more lasting, you know, it's, it's, it's more, uh, in other words, if I hear Pet Shop Boys or one of those groups, I, I immediately think of a certain era in time, whereas to me, your music is more rock-based and, and just more uh, lasting is the word I guess I would yeah. use. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's certainly by accident, but, you know, if you hear um, Human League, you know, and uh, early Howard Jones, and that's, that's that 1984, 83, don't, bum, 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 lots of synthesizers, yes. big reverbs on the vocals, and very British as well, um, Depeche Mode. But whereas, you know, Gareth was this, Gareth, excuse me, Kevin was this superb guitarist, and um, it's all over our music, and... And I apparently, you know, had that voice that fitted the mold. So, yeah, by accident, we've had the legs. And that's why, you know, 
you know, five million plays on American radio a day. Five million. And to this day. So it's not, it's not an artifact of a certain era and time. It lasts. I, I, I enjoy both. You know, I mean, I, I, I get a kick out of hearing Spandau Ballet and, and all the, you know, all the Eurythmics. And I, I love that. But Cutting Crew, I couldn't think, oh, yeah, that's 1986. It just has no, more legs. Well, I, all my friends are Spandau Ballet and Nick Kershaw and Howard Jones and uh, Holly Johnson. So, you know, these are people that I work with every summer and the festivals that aren't going to happen this year. It's, it's lovely. You, I mean, there's an interview for you. Get backstage at one of those festivals with us all sitting around the same table. Oh, I bet. Yeah. <laughs> so you guys broke up at some point in the early 90s. How, yeah. What, what, what happened there? Is it just a, uh, it seems like it wasn't dissension because you and Kevin were still very close, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, we were just two at the end. Um, no big falling out. Um, just that's how it was. We just needed two people to make that final album. Um, and it was, I mean, I really mean this. I mean, the music business, uh, there was one night when Virgin was bought by EMI, who had now been bought by Universal, you know, who will soon be bought by God. Um, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but back in those days, there was this night when our company got bought by another company, and I think they fired 97 bands that night, oh, just yeah. like that. And hey, that's how it was. But I could see that coming. So there was a point where we just finished the third album, and again, I'm very proud of the album. And we were out in Hamburg performing, and you know, you, I don't mind people hearing this because it's a, you know, I, I've got, I've got no pride. So we're playing in Hamburg with a, a record that's probably number seventy-five in the charts off the third album, and we went on and played. And then the headline act was three fat German women with pink hair and pink poodles. <laughs> <laughs> and I looked to Kevin, and he looked at me. I'm going to get tearful now. And we just kind of said, "Yeah, that's it. It's time." Yeah, it's time. <laughs> oh, wow. And of course, within within two months, it had already been uh, being put together in the background. He was with Robert Plant. He went on to join Robert's uh, Fate of Nations album, wrote some songs with him, toured for about two years. So um, yeah, he, he did really well. And I and to be honest, Mark, I really when it was over for the first time, I went, "Phew, okay, I'm just gonna just gonna kick back now and be with my daughter and my wife and." Uh, yeah, it was, a, it was a really good run, you know, up, yes. up, up till then. Up till then, up, up until the, the German ladies, huh? <laughs> that was them, the moment. <laughs> yeah. So tell me about your life. You reformed the band, what, uh, according to what I read in 05. And what was your life like between that time? That's, that's a stretch. Yeah. Well, I signed, I've always, um, always, my publishing deal is my, <laughs> my bank manager, my mistress, everything. Um, so I signed a really nice publishing deal with Sony. Um, and they said, well, you know, just write and uh, record with people. And I said, well, do I have to do it in this country? And they said, no. So we moved to the Caribbean for four years. Nice. And, and you know, you don't get that opportunity often. We lived on the East coast of Barbados, um, totally Bayesian, absolutely nowhere near the money, nowhere at all. 
surrounded by all the local people with their their farms and um we had like the life you know every every month that somebody would throw some puppies over the wall or some ducks would get kicked up the drive um it was four years where i wrote with uh, the lead singer of marillion and i wrote with some boys from canada who came down personally that was my reward for the previous 25 years sounds very nice and then then during that stay towards the very end i got the phone call saying that kevin had taken a fall on the ice in canada and whilst um, x-raying his um, his ribs, they found that he had cancer. Um, mm. So that was it. I moved up and back and forth. I think I spent about three or four months with him in his last months up in, in, in Canada, which was a, a beautiful, sad privilege. It was wonderful being with him. And whilst there, you know, I, know I already knew the city, but... You know, it's such a musical town. I was spotting all these bands and I found this young three-piece band called Mir, M-I-R. And they were just incredible. I said, I, I want to manage you. I want to write with you. I want to do everything. Can I live with you? I, I just fell in love with them. <laughs> and they said, well, if ever you want to make a record, we'll be your band, you know. I scurried back to Barbados and wrote that Grinning Souls album, came back up to Nova Scotia and we did it off the floor. Really was like, one, two, three, bam. Um, and Grinning Souls was born. Okay, and then at some point it becomes Cutting Crew again, is that right, or does it? Sorry, uh, Grinning Souls is the name of the album, I beg your pardon, yeah, yeah. Um, So yeah, no, we we called it Cutting Crew, I called Kevin's daughters and I said, look, you okay with this? And they said, absolutely fine, you know, it's it's the name, we want dad's legacy to continue on. Um, So I have that name, and here we are in 2020 with, what I consider to be the most unexpected, arduous, tricky, beautiful, rewarding thing I've ever done, uh, you know, since maybe the 80s, yeah, this new album. And that's the new album, Ransomed, yeah. Healed, Restored, Forgiven. <laughs> Is that right? <laughs> that's right. <laughs> and, okay, I asked you about Cutting Crew. What about, where is that coming from? Where's, what's the meaning of all that? Okay. Um, when I was a kid, again, in the tiniest village in the world, uh, there wasn't much to do in life anyway. But on a Sunday morning, you could go to Sunday school, to church. So the first uh, music I was ever really exposed to would have been car- Christmas carols and hymns, you know. Um, and uh, I'm not churchy at all um, now, but back then I loved it. And there is a very famous Church of England hymn called Praise My Soul, the King of Heaven. And I'll give you a quick rendition. Praise my soul, the King of Heaven, to his feet thy tribute bring. Ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven. And um, so I wrote this down on my wall of, um, uh, of uh, you know, I've got this 25 feet long piece of wallpaper with all my titles on. And I wrote it down maybe 15 years ago. And then when we did this album, uh, it just fitted perfectly, you know. Um, we were ransomed. Well, they paid in advance. <laughs> <laughs> uh, hopefully, we healed some of the songs. We definitely restored them and possibly will be forgiven by the fans and, and your good selves. I think you'll be more than forgiven. Uh, but it, these are songs, these are your songs that you've written and recorded over the years, and they are re recorded with a large orchestra 
What was the idea behind that? What made you decide to do that? What were you thinking about when you were doing that and conceiving that? For many years, people have said, you know, even from my granddad, God bless him when he was alive, you know, through to, you know, the last publishing guy, you know, Cully Cruz songs lend themselves to, to that symphonic approach. That doesn't mean they're better songs. It just means that the way we write, the, the kind of motifs that Kevin played on guitar and the, 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 the kind of anthemic way the choruses rise and fall. So when I was, uh, I got approached by this label, you know, I didn't go looking for them and they, they specialize in this. Um, and I said, well, yeah, I mean, I, I'll cut my arm off to do it with the Prague Philharmonic Orchestra. Can, can you imagine over in, Czech, in Czech Republic? But there was always this thing in the back of my mind, and you probably know what I'm going to say. You know, you, you, my dad used to have an expression, leave well enough alone. <laughs> you know, don't, don't touch, don't have the back off that amplifier if it's still working, you know. If, as we say here, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. There you go. So to tinker and to change and to, uh, the other songs, not so much, but the real big ones, you know, it's a risky thing. Um, and A, they could have just been different and brilliant, or they could have been different and not very good, or um, hopefully, you know, we've got the, the, the holy grail, and that is I think that we've made it, in some cases, even better, you know, uh, and I'm so amazed at that because, the process of recording this really was 2020s. I mean, the drummer was in Russia. Um, the conductor was in uh, Prague. The arranger was in Slovenia. The, uh, you know, and I'm over here in Britain. My guitarist is in Manchester. So it was one of those sessions um, where you cannot believe how complicated that was. I, I can't even imagine. I can't imagine. Now, when did you, do, when did you record it? This is pre-COVID, I would assume, because you released it, what, a couple months ago? Yeah, no, we got it. It was all in the can. It was last summer, throughout last summer. Okay, okay. Yeah. So it's not that you were forced to be remote, but you did it remotely. and That's the way they do it, yeah. Uh, my guitarist and I, you know, Gareth is the cutting crew guitarist, so we do a lot like that. But when you're trying to tell a Russian drummer to play less hi-hats in the choruses by telephone, that's a little odd, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, you know what? I tell you, I, um, I went on uh, YouTube. I haven't heard the whole album yet, but I, I did watch multiple times, Died in Your Arms. And I have to tell you, just as a listener, I think it's spectacular. I really do. It's amazing. It's, it's just big. It's just so big. It's just so full and big and beautiful. Yeah. I thought it was absolutely incredible. Well, thank you. Um, the the orchestra were wonderful. Um, we tried to, Gareth, my guitarist, who you'll see in that video, he's been with me 15 years now. He has that kind of, not poison chalice, but he has that tricky thing of being, de de deferring to Kevin's parts, but also stamping his own identity. And he's had to do that for 15 years all over the world as a live person. So when you hear the solo in that, you know, it's just... It's the solo, but it ain't. It's more, it's different, it's better. And I know Kevin would just be, you know, adoring it. So I think Gareth is an extremely important person on this album. He's had to learn and play all the old parts, uh, but with that new flair and uh, life. I'll tell you one uh, more story that you might enjoy, and that is Pete, the 
writer of the strings would, he said, look, I've done this so many times and, and the bands just kind of go, yeah, thanks. You know, do you want to be involved? And I said, well, if you came down to my house now, we wouldn't be listening to, um, you know, rock music. Well, maybe we'd listen to rock music. We certainly wouldn't be listening to 80s music. I'd be listening to classical music. I'm a huge fan of classical music. So I know my classical. And um, he said, great. So how can we do this? I said, well, I, I'm not very good at writing music. Why don't you ask me what vein it could be in per song? So there is a song on the album called Berlin in Winter, which is this... Uh, tune I wrote about um, Cutting Crew played in Berlin two days after the war fell. I mean, you could not make it up. We were there, hit record in the charts, and 22 people turned up. <laughs> Everybody's down at the wall, you know, what? Uh, yeah. <laughs> so we played, I think, six songs and said, come on, let's call it a day. And we all went down to the wall and parted. So it's a, it's a story about that and an old man that uh, lived long enough to see the wall fall. And beautiful song. Anyway, to my point. So we thought, well, Russian, uh, um, not Tchaikovsky, that's too pretty. We wanted somebody a little dark. So I found some Shostakovich and I sent it to him. And so at the beginning, you hear these very strident. <laughs> I'm very, we have like a, uh, a Cossack choir in the middle and everything. So I was very involved in the, in the tone of each song. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The video for Died in Your Arms, you look like you are having a fantastic time. <laughs> and your voice hasn't lost a step. I mean, a lot of artists, you can tell when they get older, they lose, they lose something. And you sound fantastic on it. So I'm a big fan of that. And my background is radio programming. And if I was programming a radio station right now, I would pop that in at least for a time in place of uh, the original, because I think that would give a a nice change of pace and really catch the attention, kind of a special surprise to listeners, you know, because it's, it's really great. Well, well, thank you for the lovely compliment. I'm, I'm very lucky to have kept my voice. Um, I think it may have been those four years in the Caribbean where I sampled most of the rum in Barbados. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Now there's going to be a run on rum among rock singers, you know, because... (laughs) Mount Gay, that's the one. That's the local Barbados one, Mount Gay, which is an interesting name for a rum, but um, a very good one, though. Very good one. But yeah, you look like you were just having the time of your life recording that. Um, I'm I'm sure it's not easy, but that's the way it looked. Thank you. Um, Armando, the director, is very good at making the video just nod the head to the original video. Now, of course, you won't know the British video. You'll know the American video. But the original first one we ever shot has a lot of shots under my nose, which I hate. And uh, uh, the bit at the beginning when the beautiful cellist is playing the cello and then the guy takes it out of her hands before she can start to play a note. That's all in the original 1986 video. So the fans love that. Any uh, chance of you performing this live at some point? We've got six shows in Britain next May, COVID permitting. Um, We've got an American promoter in California um, who's talking to us every day. and, And I'm so excited about that. Hey, you know, I'm, I'm raising my hands here. Yeah. He's keen. I'm keen. I'll do it for nothing. You know, if, 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 the, if the money just says it's going to be expensive with the orchestra, 
you could, we'll just pay for your bed for the night. I'll come over and do it. You know? I would imagine it would be, be a very expensive process to do this. It is. Yeah. Um, um, I think he'd have to get, I think there's two or three other bands he's lining up as well, because, you know, we're not the only band that's done this. Um, it's not a unique thing. So I know uh, Wang Chung are, are up for uh, being involved. Um, maybe Flock of Seagulls. So, you know, these are things that you'll have to keep your ears open for. <laughs> I will. I will. I hope you come to the Midwest, uh, somewhere yeah, in the Midwest. Where are you? I'm in Michigan. Michigan. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I love it. Love that. That's why you... You're a you're a north you're a north North American. Yes. <laughs> well, I, I really do hope that. I mean, I'm missing the gigs. I'm going to do something on my Facebook page, um, Cutting Crew Music, folks. Uh, it's just Cutting Crew Music at Facebook. I'm going to do a series of me playing live, just one song, maybe once a week. I'll do it of un you know the songs you've never heard by somebody famous. So um, the first one's um, I can't play it really. Can I hang on? Probably out of tune. Oh, it's out of tune, yeah. Okay. Um, but it, I'm going to do Neil Young, Tell Me Why. Sailing hardships on broken water out on the waves of the night. So a song every week that you may not know by a famous artist. Awesome. Well, I'm going to get on that page today. Wow. Well, listen, I have really enjoyed talking to you, and um, I appreciate your coming on. Uh, today to the RPM 45 podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mark. And of course, to you and everybody that's listening, you know, uh, stay safe. I always say stay safe, stay sane, but also really stay wise. I think that's what it's all about. You've got to be pretty smart these days. Thanks again to Nick Van Eed of Cutting Crew. This is Mark Kassoff, and I'll be back again next week with a new one on RPM 45.